about our speaker this weekend. I'm super excited to have here with us. His name is Dr. Rick Watts. Um, yeah. And so some of you will have heard him. Many of you will not have. He, uh, on the academic side, uh, definitely has a very impressive pedigree. He was originally an aeronautics engineer and then has a, I think, a master's in the Old Testament and a PhD in the New Testament from Cambridge University. Um, so very qualified to be speaking to us today. Um, impressive things, and, and we appreciate his qualifications. But I think that the, the reason we brought him um, is not because we were going through a list of who's been to Cambridge that we could get to, to listen to, um, but because of the impact that he really has had from afar on our community. Uh, I remember a lot of years ago, uh, I was introduced to, to one of his classes, just the audio of, of one of his classes by some of our friends up uh, in Bellingham, the, the ministry that uh, hosts Sikkim that so many of us have gone to for training. And, and he was sharing with me about that. And so I started listening to this class on the New Testament while running. Uh, and, and, you know, just that was kind of my, my thing. I'd go run for an hour and, and listen to a lecture. And I'd listened to plenty of classes. I've read a lot of books on the New Testament. But I just found myself over and over again running and crying the whole time. Uh, because, because not only was it, it academic, uh, it just helped me love Jesus more. And, and I think Rick really has a sense that, that these truths are not meant to just be taught, but to be preached. Uh, that these are the words of the church. And I've gotten to sit in his class as a student one time. Um, you know, he is an, an outstanding teacher, an outstanding professor. And I think it just says a lot. He's, this is his second time coming to winter camp. I think it says a lot that his willingness to come, he lives in another country, uh, to fly here, to, to go through all of that, especially in the midst of, of travel right now, to be here and minister to you. Uh, again, as I said, I feel like I love Jesus more because I've been around him. And that's really what we as pastors wanted for you, is to just get to be around him and to get to hear his heart. And so when we asked them about speaking, we mostly just told them, speak what you're really passionate about. You know, what is God laying on your heart right now? Because I know that that will really minister to you, and I'm excited about that. We have his last uh, winter camp talks, uh, if you want to go back and, and listen to those. Uh, in a lot of ways, what he's going to talk about this weekend springboards off of that. And so uh, I'll get Rick to come on up. I just want to encourage you to, uh, you know, come and sit this weekend with a spirit of expectancy of what is it that the Spirit wants to do in us uh, through Rick to speak to us and for us to take away from this. So I will pray for him and then let him get going. You can have this right here. Father, we just thank you for bringing Rick safely here. We thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to share Christ with so many brothers and sisters all around the world and every once in a while to get to meet people who love you and serve you in, in faraway places. And just as a reminder that this isn't a little thing, that it's a global thing, uh, and it's a, a, a truth for all times. And I pray that we could get a glimpse of that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Can you Oh, yes, you can. Well, I had a wonderful uh, dinner tonight with uh, Shrek and Gary. That was fantastic, guys. Really had a... <laughs> I'm home on Monday, I can tell. 
Uh, it's, it's just great to be here. I really do thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Is that okay? Can I say that? Growing <laughs> up, that wasn't really a good thing. I think they thought we had the plague or something. And, you know, we probably did, I guess. But, you know, our, our movement, there are a lot of great things about it. We're known for often excellent worship and uh, people encounter God. But we're not really the first shop you go to if you want to learn how to think. Sorry about that, but it's just the truth, right? And uh, when I went through uni, uh, first time as an aeronautical engineer, that was one thing. But we kind of picked that because it was safe, right? Um, it's just aircraft. They're not going to mess with your head as if you don't do mathematics and that messes with your head. But anyway, uh, then I went back to university to do a... ...something I shouldn't, or is that all good? Is that a sign from heaven? <laughs> Where's the problem? Are we okay? Should I just... Great, thank you. Um, and that was a totally different experience, sociology, art history, philosophy. And I'd actually gone to try and strengthen my faith. And the fact of the matter is, uh, I had a philosophy tutor. Do you have tutors here where you'd go to the lectures, but then you have tutorial groups with a professor? Some of you have that, right? It's that old English system. And it just so happened, the professor I had for philosophy was at Oxford and he got to he was a Christian and got to his final year and threw his faith in now you know that's that's one thing but uh, you know here's this wet behind the ears guy who's turned up in this class and every question I could possibly have thought of asking and a hundred others more he had already addressed and I can remember some days I actually left the tutorial room while the door was closed. I felt so small walking underneath that little space between the door and the floor, you know. It was, uh... So I ended up throwing in my faith as well. I was just, if I can't make sense of this, uh, then I, I need to have the conviction to let it go. And then out of that came a whole bunch of different things. And you're going to hear some of that tonight and in the next few days. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails, but... I just began to realize that while learning is a great thing, there's much more to life than being a walking head. And I loved art history. I particularly loved Chagall. I loved Matisse, if those names mean anything to you. And, you know, my philosophy profs are telling me about the measure of truth. And I'm thinking, how does any of that stack up with art? How can you speak to art? I don't know how philosophy can address art. It's not rational in that sense, right? So I think what I began to learn is a lot more about being human than philosophy or rationality can ever get its head around. But it was a very painful journey, and there weren't many people to help me. So what I'm inflicting on you, whether you want it or not, is some help. <laughs> uh, I'm just so thrilled to see so many of you here. It just gives us great encouragement. I'm getting old. I'm getting to the end of the twig. Sooner or later, I'm going to drop off the end, okay? And it's, it's great to see you know, younger people coming up who love the Lord. It's so encouraging for me. So anything I can do to help you, and, you know, when these guys called me and said, would you be interested, I'm right there, because I just, you're the people I want to help most, actually. I love to preach, but I love to talk to you guys more than anything else. I think you are our future. I mean that. So I really appreciate here being here. Had a great time last time. But I'm well aware, too, having begun with all of that, that you guys faced some more serious challenges than I did. Uh, back when I was going through, it was all about Marxism. Can you remember Marx? Heard of him? I don't mean Groucho. Right? <laughs> Does anyone talk about Marx anymore? I don't know. I mean, he just, they do. He's come back, has he? Uh, no, the ghost who walks, he's been resurrected. Um, 
everything was about Marx. And if you disagree with the Marxists, they just said, oh, that's because you're, you know, you're culturally captive. You need to be freed. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> the only reality they could see was theirs, and it didn't quite dawn on them. But um, that's what I was going through. But yours is a much more complex world. You've got all kinds of things going on. Uh, how do you find your way through that? I don't really know. So over these next five sessions, and now it's time for me to extract my controller, turn it on, and see if four years in engineering school actually <laughs> benefited me. Uh, have I pressed the wrong button? Whoops. I should probably go home. <laughs> Shall we resort to our magic trick? We've got this, there you go. Uh, this is you, uh, in case you didn't realize, I was down the front just taking a shot. Some of you put your shirts back on, uh, <laughs> for which we're grateful eternally. You're allowed to show your pleasure. Uh, so really, just to encourage you, over these five sessions, I've got two main concerns. Uh, addressing the question, can you trust the Gospels as historical accounts? And I want to say, yes, you can. Uh, in fact, I'm going to argue rather strongly, as I tend to do about things, I can't see how you can be a thinking person and not end up believing the Gospels. I'm not saying that arrogantly. I just don't think there's any other way to explain them unless something like this really happened. And of course, if they're true, and this is probably not describing you, but I meet lots of Christians whom the Bible's a bit like a Christian Lord of the Rings, where Jesus is kind of like Gandalf, says wise things, but we're not really sure he's real. And uh, that's not what the Gospels are. They are really down in the dirt. They really are talking about what we actually saw and touched and handled. And if that's true, if the stuff they describe is true, that Jesus could actually tell the sea what to do, that he can raise people from the dead, then there's really only one game in town, and it's his. Right? Uh, so don't hear me incorrectly about this, but you know the church is great, but I'm not here to defend the church because the church can't save you. Right? Uh, they're my brothers and sisters, and I love them, right? And they're meant to love me, and I know that's harder than it sounds, right? But um, I get all of that, but I'm not here to preach about that. I'm here to talk about Jesus. He's the only one who can fill you with his spirit and raise you from the dead, and I'm convinced that he can. And that's not all he does, and that's the second point. People sometimes think that Jesus is on the wrong side of history. I want to say, what are you talking about? Jesus gave us Western history. And in fact, modernity can really only be what it is um, because of who Jesus was. I'm going to argue that. You can't live in the modern world without having a Christian worldview. And I know this. I used to teach in China uh, before the new president came in where things are a little tougher. And they would invite us in to actually talk about how to read the Bible in major Chinese universities. So it was quite an experience. Um, and just to encourage you, uh, when I was about 10 years old in my Pentecostal background. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, inverted commas. But I saw three countries when that happened. Uh, one was Canada, which is where I live now, and the second one was China, which I ended up being invited to teach in. So you know the Lord, if you give your life to him, you have no idea where he'll take you. Even at 10 years old, you need to trust that. Right? But I should also say at this point, um,
breakfast and what a Christian is doing here. And, and I got this lecture from her, uh, fairly passionate, actually. It was amazing. She was preaching at me. She said, you know, China has to modernize. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Well, we looked at the West and, you know, up until about the 1200s, China had all these advances they'd made. They had much longer keel lines on their vessels. They developed water clocks, printing, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the Islamic world was doing, prior to that, amazing work in astronomy and mathematics, anatomy. And you guys in Europe, you're running around in blue paint half naked. Well, that's not quite the whole story, but we'll let that go through, right? And she said, yet within you know, 300 years, you completely outpaced the rest of the world. And we're trying to work out what that was. And she went through a whole list of things and she said, no, we're convinced actually that the engine of that advance was your religion. Right? Now, try to say that in your universities and see what happens, right? Uh, but that might also say something why China is really doing the kinds of things that it's doing. And uh, Now, I would correct her because I don't think Christianity is a religion. I'll explain that later. And some of you are going, yeah, I get that. Maybe not the way I meant it, but we'll come to that. So I'm at this university in Wuhan, actually. You know Wuhan of recent fame? So <laughs> good, social distancing, very good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we'd gone through the week helping him to read the Bible and just particularly from a worldview point of view. I'm not sure I like that word, but something like that. And uh, we had an evening lecture at the end of that. So there are master's students and PhD students, fairly full room and question and answer. And I can't remember the question, but um, the reply was, I said to this guy, well, you know, you know the Ming Dynasty better than I do. And you know modern China than I do. So you tell me, given what we just talked about this week, what does modern China most resemble? And you know what this doctoral student said, almost gasping? He said, actually... My goodness, China's fundamentally Christian. And he's right. right. Now you're thinking, how can that be? And may I suggest that's because, gently, your view of Jesus is way too small. I don't know who it is you're worshipping. If that comes as a surprise, I don't know who it is you're worshipping, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. That was a bit blunt. I'm sorry about that. That's a bit harsh, Rick. Okay. Um, I just want you to see how enormous he is. And in the second session, we're going to talk about that, um, the second series of talks. You know, you really can thank Jesus for your iPhone. We're not going to talk about heaven or sin or hell or even God. We're just going to talk about the way he changed how we saw, see the world. And he unleashed an intellectual revolution, the like of which has never been seen in human history. And we have no idea where it will end up. It could be starships on the shores of Sagittarius. So when you're thinking about Jesus as Lord, you need to know how big that Lord is. He is indeed the creator among us. Uh, and what he's shown us is how to understand this amazing world he's given us and open up this extraordinary opportunity for growth and freedom. And I'm going to finish by saying the reason we're a mess is because the only way to handle that freedom is to look like him. And we don't want to do that. And so our freedoms turn into our death. So they're the big two topics. Is that all right? Okay, um, and if it's not all right, I'm sorry, you have to go home because that's what I'm doing. Okay? <laughs> so I just want to encourage you, the gospel's already won, folks, in so many ways. It's already won. That battle's been dealt with. Um, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, the woke folks, Apple, if you put them all back in the first century, people would think they were Christians because of their outlook. Is that okay? So just be encouraged. Um, why start with the gospels, which is what I'm going to do tonight, or 
in preparation for tomorrow. Well, it's like the guy who climbs the mountain. They're there. <laughs> uh, and that's the really interesting thing. I'm not going to start with who Jesus was. I'm not going to start there because you only learn about him through these documents. And I'm just concerned with what's actually there. And just like the sun, your breakfast tomorrow, and me, the Gospels are there. Right? Now, you can see and touch and handle them. Well, not you personally because uh, they're pretty precious. And I won't just let any old clodhopper come in and touch them. That includes me. But, but they're there, right? Then We didn't invent them. They're right there. So the question is, um, how did they come about? That's the question I'm asking. And I think out of that, there'll be some knock on to who Jesus is. Is that okay? So now before we do all of that, um, just given the fact that you're all these bright, smart, young things, my mind's going, you're probably streets ahead of me. Uh, and because you know ideas really matter, we have to do some groundwork tonight and you're going to have to go get those beautiful minds working. Is that all right? Friday night, I know you're all ready to bop, but um, we, we've got to do some serious work here. Uh, but don't despair if you don't get all of it. There are cookies on every shelf. And I kind of, I'm of that philosophy that if someone gets all of your lecture, you've failed. Right? It's, knowledge is not something you can just neatly package and people walk away thinking, I've got that. If that happens, I think I've misled you because that's not what knowledge is like. You don't ever just get it. Right? Even one plus one equals two can be problematic. Right? So real education, I think, is to get some framework in and then give you space to grow and inspire you, hopefully. So tonight, three things, and there we go. Zap. Ta-da, good. At our church, our clicker doesn't always work. So we worked out a trick with the people up the back. I just do an exaggerated this, and it would click, and people think, oh, the clicker works. <laughs> <laughs> it's magic, magic. What are you speaking of? It's magic. Um, so first of all, why our topic matters, we're going to do that just quickly tonight, and then move into uh, how we know. And there I'm going to have to defend um, a couple of points. One, that reason is nowhere near as strong as people think it is. I need to do that because our universities are built on you know, priority of reason, or used to be when I was there, and it needs to be taken down a few pegs because it's actually a very frail read. I want to do that first. So I want to take reason away from you, and in its place, I want to put history. Right? And talk about why history really matters, okay? which is important for the Gospels. Okay? So clicker again. Uh, why does any of this matter? Well, obviously for Christians, it's the foundation of our belief and trust in Jesus. Uh, can I just say, I'm a little nervous about people saying, I'm a person of faith, and I won't ask you to put up your hand. What do you mean by that? I know that faith in antiquity was over against philosophical demonstration, and it had to do more with people's experience. So some of us think that faith is what you don't see, right? It's kind of Jesus the friendly Casper or something, and you know, it's just stuff up float bricks. No, 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 that's not what that word meant. Right? You trusted someone's account of what they saw and heard. That's what faith means. So when people talk to me, oh, you know, I'm a person of faith, I think, no, I'm not in your terms. I'm trying to be an historian. I believe this stuff because I'm convinced it happened. Okay? So just I'll be a little wary about that word faith, but it's the foundation of what we believe and have been, have been convinced is true. It really did happen. A little story to maybe encourage you in this. Um, I used to be at Regent. I'm now there kind of part-time. But uh, we're across the road from the University of British Columbia, big university in uh, obviously British Columbia. 
And uh, I had a guy turn up at my doorstep one day, knocked on the office and the office door and came in and, hi, who are you? And he introduced himself and uh, he said, I don't come to Regent, but I've got some questions about Christianity and can you help me? Well, yeah, we'll do that. We talked a bit more and I said, well, you know, how serious are you about this? I said, I'm serious. No, I mean really serious because you're going to do some reading. Oh, I do some reading. No, I mean six and seven hundred page books reading and a number of those. You up for it? Because if you're not, um, we can just say goodbye. Off you go. <laughs> On your bike, mate. Okay. Um, I, I, sorry, I'm just not prepared to muck about with people who aren't serious. There's too many other things to do than to have folks who want to have a nice little debate over coffee and walk away feeling clever because they had a smart argument. There are places I like to put that smart argument and it's not their pocket. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, I know what you're thinking. I'm talking about their ear. So, um, <laughs> now, I mean, just be serious. And if you look at Jesus, he doesn't muck about with people who aren't serious either, right? He'll, he can be pretty strong with someone, you know, just go and do likewise, mate. And he walks away. Right? And, um, so anyway, this guy said, yeah, I'll do that. Great, we're in. So we spent a couple of months reading different books and uh, it was great. He had great questions. And we came to the question of the resurrection and I gave him Tom Wright's massive tome, The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you drop that on yourself, you'll need a resurrection. It's a huge <laughs> thing. And he read it, which is amazing. And so he came back to the office and I said, so uh, what do you think of the book? And he was pretty quiet. I said, well, uh, did you find it persuasive? He said, well, actually, um, yeah. Said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I, I can't really explain it, but I think something like the resurrection must have happened. Good. What are you going to do about it? Well, uh, I don't know. No, what are you going to do about it? Well, um, I guess I should follow Jesus. Good. Let's go. Let's get started, right? And uh, now he's been involved in youth work and done all kinds of stuff, right? And uh, you know, and that was simply dealing with the evidence. That doesn't mean, of course, that you know, encountering Jesus is incredible. But you've got something above your shoulders that has to be engaged too. And I think that's what happened with this young guy, right? He just looked at this evidence and thought, you know, I really can't explain it any other way. It must have happened. And if it did, so now he follows Jesus, which is great. So this stuff, it's about did it really happen? Because it's the foundation of what we believe. Secondly, uh, I'm sure your education poses a bit of a problem. Some of the stuff you're learning and, you know, we professors, myself excluded, of course, can be pretty opinionated. <laughs> uh, no, it was secular schools. Oh, by the way, did you know that it was Christians who invented the word secular? It was Pope Gregory VII who did that. We invented that word. Uh, there it was to try and keep... Um, the kings out of the church's business but it's kind of been turned around on us now so keep us out of the king's business and the schools or something i was staggered recently to learn that my alma mater cambridge uh, at cambridge university it's the students who are becoming the most inquisitorial and censorious about views they don't expect i would never have imagined that i could never imagine in my life that students would start excluding people from speaking because they didn't agree with what they had to say. I mean, that, what is that? I'm, I'm absolutely staggered that that happens at a university. And Cambridge. What? My goodness. Well, um, thirdly, your own broader culture. Uh, you might have just read the news recently. I tend to read the BBC, and they talked about how Joe Biden's got a bit of a problem because 
uh, he was making some statements and some of his own people, I'm not taking sides here, by the way, some of his own people said, you know, that was a bit over the top. We already have a very divided nation. We don't need more division. And that's the world you're facing, folks. When I was about your age, Republicans and Democrats would argue in the house, but then they go out for lunch together. That doesn't happen anymore. You have a serious problem. It could, in fact, be deadly and mortal. That's how serious it is. So how are you going to speak to that? What have you got to offer? Have you got something to contribute to that? To, and I think in the gospel we have. The church hasn't always lived that out, <laughs> for sure. Uh, but I think that's another reason why this stuff matters, because it can really change the world if people are prepared to respond to it. And then finally, there's always those big questions. What does it mean to be human? How can you answer the gender question unless you know what it means to be a human being? Racism. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to pick fights here, but what in the world is racism? What is that? And how can you talk about it without knowing what it means to be human? No one in the ancient world talked about racism. Everyone knew the Greeks were better than everybody else, right? or at least the Greeks thought they should. Right? But racism is the natural state of humanity. Right? I have students who live in Ghana who feel the same way about Nigerians. They feel the Nigerians think they're better than every other African person. Right? They just, okay. uh, you know, they tell me this. So, you know, it's not the purview of, don't, don't fall into simplistic responses. This is really complex stuff. How do you deal with it? Right? And, of course, it's really easy to complain when no one's picking up the garbage. It's much more difficult to work out how to do that. Right? It can be really righteous when you've got a strong point to stand on, but how do you actually fix the problem? without becoming part of it, that's more difficult. And that's where I think Jesus is a genius. He's an absolute genius. And that statement, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, that's only half of it, as I have loved you. He gets to define what love means. I think if we did that, a lot of these other problems would evaporate without the antagonism and without the need to condemn and all that kind of stuff. There'd be lots of repentance, but from everybody, I think. Okay, So... Large questions. What do we live for? And even more, how do we know? And what might not surprise you is this is not unlike the first century. It was in an equal kind of malaise. People just did not know what was going on. The great Greek philosophical project had largely collapsed. It was just all over the ship. Big questions. What does it mean to be human? So you should be encouraged because the gospel we're talking about wasn't formed in a cotton wool padded box. Right? It took root in this kind of really tumultuous, conflicted and violent world. And in about 300 years, sorry, it doesn't happen overnight, it had conquered. Right? And modernity demonstrates that fact, even in the hearts of people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus. Okay? So, ta-da! How do we go forward? So tonight what I'd like to do is begin to talk about how we know and particularly the relationship between reason and history. So in the West, ta-da, um, our reliance on reason goes back a very long way to the Greeks who used to call themselves the Hellenes. So you'll hear me talk about the Hellenes because that's the word they use. All right, just want to respect them in doing that the right way. Uh, they are really the classic example. Credit where credit is due. They came up with this staggering innovation they believed that reality could be understood entirely by the resources of the human mind alone. No one else had ever thought that before. That was the staggering 
Greek contribution. Right? Too bad it was wrong, but excellent try. Well, the result of all of this, and you've seen it if you've been to Athens, amazing architecture, no question about that. Uh, those statues are staggering. Ever been to Naples, anybody, and looked at some of those statues there? And the famous Hercules? No. Okay, when COVID's over, you need to travel. Okay? There's a bigger world out there. You need to see it. Okay? Uh, logic, boy, Aristotle's logic, amazing. The geometry of Euclid, it's all brilliant. No, that's all great, but... It was a massively hierarchical society, oppressive. If you're a lower status person, you could never bring a charge against a more, important, a more important person. They could just tread you underfoot and you had no legal recourse. Think about that. Think about if that's what really happened in the US and some guy drives you off the road because his charity is better than yours and you can't do anything about it. Imagine living in that world. That's the world of Greek reason. It was, in fact, racist. Their cities were divided up, the Greek quarter, the Cypriot quarter, because you couldn't trust people to get along with one another. Places like Antioch were burned several times over during the history by these riots that got out of hand. Different ethnic groups fighting one another. Misogynists, they weren't even sure that women were human. Because right? you're so up and down and odd and things like that. And you can't really think as clearly as we men can. Right? We've all watched the NFL, haven't we? <laughs> uh, they, they, just no care at all for the masses. That's what staggered Tom Holland recently, a non-Christian guy who wrote an article saying why well, I was wrong about Christianity. He's a specialist in the classical world. And what staggered him was that these people thought nothing about treating ordinary folk as dirt. Nothing. It never occurred to them to do anything else. But, you know, here and particularly in California, everyone's opinion matters. That it's just so far from antiquity. It's, it's unimaginable. Endemic violence. They justified slavery. And because of their reliance on reason, they believed there was no room for change. That's how the world was always going to be, right? So uh, my point here is you'll often meet folks who champion reason. And my response is, do you actually know what you're asking for? Because there was a point in history where some people actually tried that. And this is the world that resulted. Here's something. What if racism is actually the result of relying on human reason? Think about that. Well, well, next key. Sorry, have to hold the magic wand. <clears throat> Where's Gandalf when you need him? Uh, that's twice he's got to mention. I should stop that. Well, in terms of you know recent recent Western history, and I do apologise. I know this is very Western centric, but that's partly because of our location and we're in the Western tradition. And is that okay? And, and uh, even in major Chinese universities, some of the biggest schools are schools of Western philosophy. So I'm not trying to say the West is best at all, but it's just the world in which we live. Well, there's the Enlightenment, and uh, you've probably heard of the Enlightenment. Uh, people have strong views about it. It's often a whipping boy. Is that sexist? I hope not, because of its heavy emphasis on reason. But, you know, the Enlightenment did have some significant advances. Uh, you could argue that uh, it was less racist than a lot of the rest of, of European history. You could argue that. 
But one of the things it recognized were the limits of reason. We're going to talk about those just for a few minutes now. So the first thing you can see out there is the nature of reality. Now, in the 17th century, anyone read a 17th century book recently? I think that should be 18th century. It was in the 1700s. My notes should say 18th century. You don't know that? I'm just being honest here. <laughs> this is St. Rick of you know, Vancouver. Come down to it. No, no, no. Okay. Um, David Hume, heard of him? Wrote a famous book, Against Miracles, David Hume. You heard of David Hume? Some of you? Very good. Uh, Thomas Reed, probably not so much. But they were having a big debate about the nature of reality, and they both agreed that if you relied on reason alone, you could not prove the existence of something even so ordinary as last night's dirty socks lying on the floor. And we just saw that in the slide earlier. And you'll say, well, yes, I can, I can see them. That's not reason, that's experience. But you can't sit down in your armchair and prove that your armchair exists. Reason can't do that. Well, right? And that's not all. Well, what about mathematics? So I'm a techie guy, right? I love that kind of stuff, trained as an engineer. That's all about math, isn't it? Um, surely, right? This is, there's some kind of foundation here. This is one of these great turning points in history that I love. In 1930, in a place called Königsberg, you've all heard it, I'm sure, uh, there was a towering mathematical genius by the name of David Hilbert, and he really was a guru in his day, getting all these plundered, uh, plaudits and praises and honors. And, and he thought that he could resolve uh, the theory of numbers problems in the Western tradition and show that there's no contradiction. I think it was 25 or 26 little problems he had to fix up, and then he would have accomplished it. So there he is, right? And he's doing this great presentation on the main stage. And down the hall, it's one of those great stories, is this young guy no one's ever heard of before called Kurt Goodell. And he just cut the whole project off at the knees by demonstrating that far from mathematics being the foundation of all knowledge, mathematics itself proved that it was impossible to demonstrate its own consistency. Now, I mean, here's this guy on this big program, right? And down the hall is this little guy, like, chop, 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 and it's all over. <laughs> Beautiful. There is a hope for you guys, right? You, um, don't be deceived by us old blokes. Uh, you may see something we never saw before. Right? Um, you can't prove it to be true. It works, so you use it. But you know there are geometries that are contradictory. There are multiple infinities, all kinds of stuff, right? Well, okay, that's math, the fundamentals of all our kind of technology. What about morality? Well, uh, especially, you know, given the importance or the interest we've spoken of in terms of racism and wokeness and that kind of thing, surely that matters. Now, I don't know what you know about post-modernity. I don't quite see it as the enemy of the gospel that many people do. It depends on whom you're speaking to or to whom you're speaking, to use the right construction. My English profs would correct me. Uh, we tend to think that they don't believe in absolutes, but that's not always true. So Stanley Fish, you might have heard of him, uh, he says, of course he believes in absolutes, he just doesn't believe you can prove them. And I think that's what the postmodern project is really about. It's saying the Greeks were wrong. No amount of Plato or Aristotle can ever demonstrate that it's wrong to torture a child for entertainment. That's why that culture could actually justify slavery. You can't prove this stuff. And Stanley knew that. He said, look, I absolutely believe this, but I also know that I can't prove this to anyone else. Right? So think about that. 
it's actually impossible to prove by reason that racism is wrong. You just can't do it, folks. Right? You can't. Sorry about that. And I think that's part of the reason for why some of these things become increasingly shrill because if they're thoughtful, they know how fragile that foundation is. I think the gospel has an answer, but it doesn't lie in that direction. And it's not just that. Finally, a chap called uh, Garland Strawson, I think it is, uh, he's made the point that it's impossible to know or to prove through reason that humans are actually free moral agents and we won't know until the whole universe is over. Good luck with that. <laughs> now, you know, I'm not against thinking. Hopefully that's clear because I've tried to think about this stuff. Uh, what I'm trying to demonstrate is what the Enlightenment realized, but which... I think the Greeks in the first century had already begun to know that reason is a very frail staff upon which to lean. It's great if you've got things that you can start with, but it's hopeless at giving you those starting points. You've got to start somewhere and reason can't do it for you. Okay? So that led to, click, in the late 19th and 20th century, there was a battle over the relative places of philosophy, science, and history. It probably still goes on in universities. It's certainly going on in theological schools. Right? There's often a battle between theologians and biblical people over what really is the basis of what we know. Right? And sometimes it can tend to be, I need a rational system, and others are going, yeah, life's not that rational, actually. Uh, and I'm convinced of that. The world is not rational. It's just, it doesn't conform to our expectations. It is what it is, but there you go. Now, why does this matter? Because the Gospels present themselves as history. And I'll make that point tomorrow when we actually start looking at them. They themselves are historical artifacts. You can see them. Right? And they claim to be about an historical first century person. Okay? Now, how do we start thinking about history? Well, guess what? Click, click. We have to go back to those Hellenes again. Right? That's... Uh, they're hugely influential, and that's why many of our buildings look like they've been transported just out of Corinth or Athens. This picks up on that tremendous influence of that culture. Now, if you think about the Greeks, uh, the world they grew up in was pretty tumultuous. They had earthquakes a lot of the time, political turmoil, warring city-states. The Persians kept pressing in from, from your perspective, the east, right, over this way. Uh, everything's in flux, and they're desperately looking for some kind of stability. Does that sound familiar? How many human beings right now, even as we speak, are wrestling with that? Lord, if you just give me that boy that I like, everything will be fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so, remember that amazing assumption that reality can be grasped by the resources of the human mind alone? The mind can only grasp what doesn't change. Now, that sounds complex, but it's not, right? Um, if you keep changing the meaning of words, you can't talk to anyone, right? Chair has to mean a chair, right? That's, everyone agrees to that in the language. You can't be part of a society and be totally pluralistic. Language doesn't work that way. Language is about, I willingly submit to these rules so that I can communicate. So if you're into freedom alone, you're in serious trouble. Because freedom alone, you can't have a community. Right? There have got to be some things you give up in order to have some kind of stability. 
All right? You just have to learn to do that. And for Christians, we call that discipleship. I'm sorry, you didn't come to Jesus to have your dreams fulfilled. If you did, you're in trouble. We came to Jesus because he's the only one who can give us life, and we haven't got a clue how to live. We need him to help us. When he calls us sheep, he's not kidding, and that is not a compliment. Not if you've lived on a farm with sheep, right? (laughs) And that includes the sheep here who think they're actually in shepherding school and will soon graduate to become shepherds. No, 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 right? We are specialists at ignorant self-destruction. So they're thinking, okay, there's got to be the things that don't change. There's got to be some kind of central unifying idea to chairness. They will call that essences or something, right? And you can see that because we can talk about chairs. Something's going on. Whether it's essences is another matter, but something's going on. Now, the problem is, of course... uh, well, before we get to the problem, they're already doing that in geometry. Remember Euclid? Some of you, maybe at school. And your perfect circles and triangles, they don't exist in reality. You'll never find a perfect circle like that. But they pick that up and then they want to apply it not to chairs, not only, but to justice and ethics and all that kind of thing. The problem is, none of these things exist in the real world of experience. So that's where this word metaphysics comes from, above the physical world, transcending it, and it's all happening in our minds. This is a big problem with humanities departments. I trained as an engineer, and I know as an aeronautical engineer, you don't get to tell the world what it's like. If you ignore the laws of aerodynamics, the outcome's going to be a very nasty accident with a lot of people going up in flames. You don't get to express your identity in an aircraft. Sorry about that. And you want to thank God that the plane you're flying in, those engineers never did that. They have to submit to these rules to enable this thing to fly, okay? And the problem, I think, sometimes with humanities is they lose touch with that reality. It all becomes about how they conceptualize stuff. Don't try that with engineering, please. (laughs) Don't try designing cars like that. We'll be in serious trouble. Uh, You get some freedom, but there are bounds within which you have to work. Well, you know, it sounds like a great idea. It's all about perfect ideas, but it doesn't really work. I've already mentioned that. Uh, What it does is basically make the whole universe Greek. (laughs) So Plato talks about what? You know, those four things, wisdom, justice, etc. Never a word about love or compassion, because that's not part of the Greek universe. So he thinks he's escaping his cave, and all he's doing is spray-painting the rest of the universe Greek, I think. Well, you know, it started to fall apart already in the first century. Interestingly, it was revived by third and fourth century Greek Christians influenced by Plato. That's a whole other story. So that's kind of where the, the reason thing begins. They're trying to make sense of the world with all its instability. How do they kind of hold it together? Now, this has traction up through the medieval period. Anyone recognize that school? It's the other place. It's Oxford. Oh, by the way, who run the rec- who won the recent boats race? Was that uh, was that Cambridge by any chance? Just came to me there. It's, um, <laughs> quite so, quite so. Injury, yes, quite so. Uh, <laughs> well, metaphysics had some traction, largely because of the way people read the Gospel of John about the Logos. Uh, I would say I think they misread it, but that's me being this very opinionated professor <laughs> who happens to be Australian, which doesn't help. Okay. Um, 
But, you know, what happened is it's largely, a large part was due to the church's marriage of Plato and then later Aristotle with the gospel. Right? They thought, well, this is, the, this is the way to know we should be able to mix the gospel with that. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of led to the battle between religion and science. They kind of backed the wrong horses, actually. But that's something else in just a minute. However, the more folks thought about this whole metaphysical thing, the more unwieldy, complex, and unstable it became, began to fall apart. So if you look back to the medieval world, as some people I know do, as this wonderful thing, the medieval synthesis, it was already straining at the, at the joints and falling apart. It would not survive. It couldn't. Okay? It was doing exactly what happened in the Greek world. Once you start thinking about this stuff seriously, it just doesn't work. And at least one brilliant voice, Duns Scotus. Anyone know him? You get your Dunces hat from him. Uh, he's a really difficult guy in, in terms of understanding. People thought he was a bit of a nut. But he said, actually, you know what? You're having all these debates about reality and something else, but all you actually have is the unique thisness of things. Right? As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself I speak. Uh, That was a guy I love, Jared Manley Hopkins. Anyone know Jared? wonderful poet he gets the uniqueness of things that's done scotus in poetry he said you don't have these big universal ideas they're not real they're not real like the person sitting next to you the stuff that you actually have are particular things the rest is our attempt to construct stuff around it brilliant insight i think now at the same time people doing natural philosophy which we end up calling science they begin to realize that if you're going to learn about the world, you had to chuck Aristotle. He was much more popular then. Plato, but he really wasn't a big player at that point. You had to do that if you're going to learn about the world. You had to trust your senses. You had to look at it as it really and actually was. And the problem with the Greeks, too often they sat in their armchairs and speculated about what they thought the world should be. And let me tell you, the world is not what you and I think it should be. It is what it is. And you learn about it by engaging with it. Can I say it's the same thing about Jesus? Jesus is not who you might happen to think he should be. He is who he is. Can I be a little more provocative? You have to be careful, folks. Some of us have ideals of what it means to be a good father, and we put God in that image, and he's not that. God is not my ideal of a good father. God is who God is. He's going to tell me what it means to be a good father. I can't predict that. Is that okay? We are not in control of this. Sorry. One of the first things kids learn is that the world pushes back. It's called falling off your tricycle. (laughs) It's what it is. It's not what we'd like it to be. Now, why am I making such a point of that? Because that's exactly what the Gospels have been saying for 2,000 years. They're all about an experience that nobody was expecting in their wildest imaginations. And when John talks about it, it's the same guy who talks about the Logos 
what he says is we saw and we touched and we handled. That's exactly the stuff that Duns Scotus is talking about. It's the particular. That's what's real. And the Gospels nail it. And actually, I love that about Israel's tradition. They don't do philosophy. They don't do speculation. When they're at Sinai, they don't gather at the bottom of the mountain and have a couple of seminars on the doctrine of God. Yahweh reveals himself and he says to them, you should see how often these words occur. You have to look and you have to listen. Look how often sense words appear in the Exodus. Because we don't guess about this. Got that? When Yahweh says, I am who I am, that's not some statement of metaphysical ground of all being. Come on, 1400 BC, give me a break. That's not going to be around for a thousand years yet, right? And you're in the wrong country. What he's saying is, I am who I am, and don't guess, you've never met a God like me. And that's what we're doing when we worship Jesus, you know that? We're actually learning about who God really is, so we can live lives that are conforming to the world as it really is. That's what we do. And when we do that, you end up with the amazing things we're going to talk about in the last few sessions on the amazing stuff that's gone on in our modern world. Starships on the shores of Sagittarius comes exactly out of that approach. Oh, right. So um, this is the stunning thing. Engineers and scientists actually know how to read the Gospels at that point. Now, I get you, you know, they're not really good at literary stuff and metaphors, they tend to mess up pretty badly. But they get the reality thing. And they get the fact that the world pushes back and the world is what it is. You have to work with that. You know, you can get to shape it a bit and all the rest of it, but only on its terms. And if anyone working in engineering, you know that, right? Materials engineering or any of that kind of stuff, you know, right? You just, you have to deal with the reality. I think Apple tried to come up with a phone charger, right? You just, they ended up one of the few products, well, apart from the Newton, uh, that they never released because they just couldn't do it. Right? Didn't have the ability to be able to, get the world to work that way and just had to let it go the world pushes back slide again well um, what happened then uh, was the 16th 17th century European scientists they rejected speculative metaphysics now bear in mind most of these guys are Christians right committed Christians as they understood what it meant to be a committed Christian uh, so what what was metaphysics all about well you know you're trying to explain why the planets do what they do that's mostly where it happens and the planets didn't behave like philosophy said they should because they're meant to be perfect because they're right up there. So they should move in perfect spheres, but they don't. How do we explain that? Well, there's an angel, right? And every fourth year at 5.32 a.m. on April the 1st, he gives the planet a nudge to make it sure it kind of moved. Uh, do you find that convincing? Uh, welcome to the club. Most people didn't either. <laughs> So they kind of gave up on that and said, no, no, no. And you see, they're still looking for something solid. They're looking for something that explains why things happen. Only now, they're not looking at metaphysics, ideas outside the world. They're actually looking in the world. They're looking for the stuff in the middle of the change. And that's what all the laws of nature are about, the laws of science. These are unchanging things at work in a world that's full of change. And it gives us some sense of control. Human beings love to do that. I just watched a little clip on the BBC today, I think, where Stephen Pinker was talking about why humans do some of the most irrational things, seeing patterns where patterns don't exist. Seen a beautiful mind, right? Now, now we do that all the time. I was just saying to somebody, you know, bad things happen to me three times in a row on two days, so I think God doesn't like me. Right? 
that's got to be God at work. No, it's not. It's just random stuff. There's just a lot of random stuff going on, and you happen to get three of them. Go back and read your Bible and see if that's the way they read the world. No, they don't. It's the prophets who tell them if what they're going through is bad stuff. Anyway, that's another question for another time. Now, the point of all of this is that the underlying project is still the same. Whether you're doing philosophy, it's looking for the thing outside the flux, beyond the change in the realm of ideas. Science, 16th, 17th century, gave up on that. It's looking for something that doesn't change, but now it's in the flux, right? somewhere in the midst of all of that. And I think that's often one of the reasons why people trumpet scientific discoveries. It gives this tremendous sense of, wow, we're learning stuff. And, you know, it's, it's good. We can make sense of the world. And soon we'll learn how human beings came about. And you think, well, that's all great stuff. And, you know, the Webb telescope is fabulous. I can hardly wait to see what it comes up with. But will it lead to world peace? It's going to make you a better husband or a wife, better mother or a father. I don't think so. How will it deal with injustice? The Webb telescope? <laughs> well, <laughs> the point is science, just like reason, can't. Science can't tell you that it's wrong to abuse children. Now, look, I'm not against science. I'm an engineer. I love techie stuff. But, you know, it's got limits. And can I say these are pretty big limits? And they're increasingly dangerous because if people don't learn how to live together, we've got more and more power and the outcomes are going to be even more destructive when things boil over. Science can't tell you that black lives matter. Or any life for that matter. In fact, it's more likely to suggest that human beings are largely insignificant little events in the midst of a vast, unfeeling universe. That's what it's more likely to tell you if you're reasonable. Oh, insignificant cog in a quantum-driven machine. And then you tell people, now make sure you don't cheat on the stock exchange. Don't cheat on your spouse. Really? Is that going to work? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, why can't we tell each other the truth about this kind of stuff? Because it's really scary to have to face it. Now, it was this shared focus even though philosophy and science might look different they're about the same project and that's what caught the attention of a guy called robin collingwood from the 1930s that seems like ancient history for you but not too far in the past actually and he was an english philosopher of history and he saw a major problem here and let me try and explain it to you science and philosophy are really good at telling us about groups of things and what they have in common so, uh, what, let me, Mockingbird, for example, that might be dear to some of your hearts. Is that the Texan national state bird, is it? Mockingbird, there you go. I actually looked that up, so I'm cheating. Okay? <laughs> they can tell you the kind of food that mockingbirds plural eat, their nesting patterns, their shape, their general colouring, all that kind of stuff. But, science can never tell you why this particular mockingbird landed in your particular front yard at 9.17 in the morning on July the 7th, 2020, and ate from this particular tree. Can't do it. Because it doesn't deal with that kind of stuff. It just deals with the generalities. That's exactly what Scotus had noted. Our knowledge of the world starts with particulars. Right? Our sun, 
our earth, this tree, that ball. Yes, we recognize similarities. We can group them into sets, but the sets are not real. Not like the individual tree or bull or mockingbird is real. They're conceptual gatherings that we introduce. There's a famous Italian, one of my great heroes, Benedetto Croce, and I always get his name wrong, so I've just given up. He wrestled with this question too. He's at this intersection. What takes priority, philosophy, science, or history? He's wrestling with this. He was self-taught, by the way, an amazing guy. But he said, you know what? Natural science is actually about pseudo-concepts. But he doesn't mean that those laws are untrue. All he's saying is those laws are not real in the same way that the things they describe are real, like the sun, the moon, the light, the bulls, and the mockingbirds. So what we call laws, they're just human conceptualizations based on experience. You can't take, I don't know, your apple, stick it in a you know, reduction combustion chamber or something over a Bunsen burner, and out the bottom falls E equals MC squared. It's not going to happen. Right? Those laws don't actually exist in the same way that the real stuff around us exists. Why does that matter to me? Because the Gospels are about a real guy who existed. Right? And that's as basic and as fundamental as you can get. You got that? And I didn't come to this because I you know, somehow wanted to defend the Gospels. I just wanted to work out, so how do we know stuff? And the thing is, you see, these laws are always subject to change. You discover some new reality. Oh, there's dark matter out there. What happens there? Oh, we've got to refine our understanding. We've got to refine our mathematics to describe what we're actually seeing. That's why the Greeks never really developed science. They described what they thought should be happening and didn't actually see it. Whereas what modern science tends to do is say, okay, we have to look at the world, come up with ideas, and then test them. Then we can make some guesses based on that. Okay. So interestingly, in this sense, philosophy and science are themselves both within history. They're historical moments because it's what humans do. We're thinking about the world. We're observing the way it changes. And, you know, we learn new things, we have to adjust our philosophy and our science. Nor can science and philosophy tell you why Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive would in, uh, invented the iPhone when they did. You could never predict that. Now, I love creativity. Where does that come from? That's stunning stuff. What does it mean to be a designer? It doesn't fit either of those worlds. Why? Because those worlds don't know how to deal with individuals or particulars. They're really good at universal descriptions, but they can't handle unique things. And I think that's why people who come to the Gospels trying to do science or philosophy get themselves into trouble. Because the Gospels are sui generis. They're talking about a unique individual whom we worship. No one like him anywhere else in history. How can you use tools that are all about how everyone has to behave on someone who doesn't do that? Of course you're going to end up turning Jesus into something that fits your model. If you're wearing kind of blue-colored glasses, everything's going to become blue. It's that kind of thing that's going on. Okay? So what people like Collingwood and Croce argued was that actually for history, reality is not above the flux or deeper within it. It is the flux. That's reality. We live in a world that changes. That's real. Okay? And the rest of it is our attempt to try and come to terms with it. 
So from that point of view, you don't look for general laws. What you look at are individual actions and their motivations. Just because you understand the French Revolution doesn't mean you know diddly squat about the Russian one. Because revolutions don't follow universal laws. They're all about what was going on at that particular moment in history, that particular mockingbird in that particular front yard on that particular day. Every revolution has its own individual character. And why? Because it's based on individuals' decisions and actions in unique situations. Right? And that's what Collingwood meant when he called history the science of the mind. Right? Now, he's using science in a, term, in a way that you're probably not used to. He's using the old Latin term, scientia, or scientia. And that means simply an organized body of knowledge on any topic. Now, Collingwood's a bit cranky about natural science because he says natural science tries to claim that word just for itself. It says, we're the only ones that have genuine organized knowledge. Oh, really? Can that be true? Are they really trying to tell us that we can never understand why Caesar crossed the Rubicon? Can they suggest to us that that's not genuine knowledge because it's not natural science? What kind of impoverished life is that? Who would want that, right? Um, so history is a science, it's an organized body of knowledge, but it's about a different subject matter that natural science and philosophy can't deal with because they're not equipped to deal with individuals. They're always looking above the flux or through the flux. They're not actually looking at the flux, if you can pick that up. And why is it a science of the mind? He doesn't mean neuroscience. For him, mind is about individual human agency. It's why some of you have chosen to dress the way you have tonight, which is a wonder to all of us. Angels even long to look into these things. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> While we choose the hairstyles, we do. Uh, just that incredible thing called, just that makes humans so interesting. It's about human agency. And that's the angle I'm going to approach the gospel. I've got about 10 minutes left and then we're done. Okay. Now, sorry, the wand. So from this point of view, and I've deliberately chosen to put Jesus on the cross there, that's one of the great moments of individual human agency in history, and it changed the world forever. You notice that about Jesus? He determined to go to the cross. He's not some innocent victim who was manipulated. He was planning this all along. He avoids the crowds when he needs to, but he's determined to get them to kill him on Passover. That's some serious planning. And to make sure it happens, when he stands before the high priest, he pulls his nose and tweaks his ears and kicks him in the shins, all kinds of stuff to get the response. Well, not quite like that, but the claim he makes is effectively doing that. And the high priest just says, you've got to die, right? And, but that was entirely his intention. And you do know the cross did not kill him, not if you've read the Bible properly. When they come and report to Pilate that Jesus already did, he staggered because crucifixions are meant to last days. They're the most horrific agony you could ever imagine. You don't die quickly on a cross. That's why they have to break the legs of the other guys because it's a you know, some respect to the Jewish people. Otherwise, they just let them hang there for a week or whatever, right? Horrible. Jesus had died before that. You don't take your... You don't take my life from me. I lay it down. And that's what he did after a few hours on the cross. He said, you ready? It is finished. 
And the whole world was different from then. I hope you get that. You have not come to cunningly devise fables. The world is forever changed because of this. Sorry, a little preaching moment there, but it's just what he does is incredible. So actually, history is not about events. It's about actions. It's really important to keep that in mind. Not events, it's actions. It's what humans choose to do whether wisely or unwisely, and as sheep, mostly unwisely. History is about explaining ourselves to ourselves in ways that science and philosophy never can because they can't see me. They can give me a number, but they can't see me. And Collingwood was very careful about that. He said, you, just, you have to watch natural science and philosophy because when humans apply them to humans, they end up reducing themselves to inanimate objects or machines. They have to do that because that's all science and philosophy can deal with. Okay? Now, I'm not saying throw that stuff out. I'm just recognizing the limitations. Okay? So for Collingwood, that kind of approach to being human was not really knowledge. It was more a kind of uh, forcing humans to fit its assumptions. And the only way they could do that was lopping off bits that they couldn't deal with. And you see that happens in the Gospels a lot. People have certain assumptions about reality. Oh, we don't like that. We don't like this. We don't like that about God. God can't get angry. Right? That's an anthropomorphism. So we get rid of that. Who told you God can't get angry? Where'd you get that idea from? Well, I know what God is like. Oh, really? Uh, let me remind you of something. I am who I am. Does that ring a bell? Okay. Hmm. Right. So for Collingwood then, right? History matters because it's all about the knowledge of individual human action. What we choose to do, what we think its significance might be. As I said, it's the story of who we are. We're explaining ourselves to ourselves. And that's where the Gospels are in all of this. So that's why I've spent so much time on this. right? Because I want you to see that the Gospels are not nice little stories that people tell each other in Sunday school. And, you know, look, I, I have taught Sunday school, and I, I know how difficult that can be. In fact, when I was doing my doctorate Cambridge, I signed up deliberately to teach seven-year-old boys in Sunday school. And the idea was, if I couldn't let them understand what I was doing, then I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. I had to be able to communicate it to them, right? And that wasn't easy. But, you know, the real danger, folks, in Sunday school, if you're not careful, is everything gets trivialized. And then it happens in the pulpit. And then no wonder people walk away from this thing. Right? The sermons, if you're not careful, they're all super easy. So people can take away their three, four, three points as if life can be reduced to three points. Haven't you had a family member dying of cancer? Can that be reduced to three points? No. People have lost their jobs. It's the great thing about Scripture. It never does that because it knows how messy and complex and confusing life can be. It's not about giving us control. It's about giving us hope in the one who's promised to bring us through all of that, not to take it away, but to bring us through all of that to a world that's been restored and newly created, which is what we hope for, the resurrection. I think that's much more realistic. That's going to help you really live with the world, right? Makes, you know, you know him. And that's the one thing that doesn't change. 
in the flux, when onions are doing all this stuff, there is one, I am the Lord, I do not change. In me, there is no shadow of turning. Others may lie, but never me. I am faithful and true. And once you get to know that, you don't have to understand everything because you know you're in very good hands. Well, thanks for staying with me so long. We can just go to the next slide. I'm done now. Um, you've done brilliantly an hour of stuff. You're going to be quizzed on it tomorrow morning, so uh, you might want to. <laughs> no. Uh, but, oh, thank you. <laughs>